When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Think about the last time you looked up at the stars. Did you give them a second thought? Did you think of them as anything more than pretty points of light? Or did you feel a deeper connection to them and wonder what's out there? For as long as humans have been on Earth, the stars have been sacred things. Whether they were being worshipped in religious rituals or used by lost sailors to guide their way home, the stars have always been a constant beacon in the night. And for nearly as long as people have gazed up at the stars in wonder, there have been dreamers who have looked at them and thought, how can we get there? Stories of early rocket technology date back as far as ancient Greece, when around 400 BC a philosopher named Archytas created a wooden pigeon suspended from wires that he moved around by escaping steam. About 300 years later, Hero of Alexandria created a spherical contraption that sat on top of a boiling pool of water. The gas from the steaming water went inside the sphere and forced itself out from a pair of L-shaped tubes on either side, creating thrust. The Chinese are credited with creating the first real rocket sometime around the first century AD, using an explosive concoction similar to gunpowder for propulsion. In more modern times, you'll often hear the names of scientists like Robert Goddard and Werner von Braun listed as the true fathers of modern rocketry. One name that often gets overlooked in history books is Jack Parsons. Even though Parsons was instrumental in creating the type of rocket propulsion systems that are still in use today, much of his legacy has been purposefully forgotten for reasons you need to hear to believe. Come with me now and hear the bizarre true story of how one of the co-founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and fathers of modern rocket science was also part of a black magic sex cult and how his story ties into the creation of the Church of Scientology. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you from the secret soundstage where Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landings, which he built on Mars for authenticity. And this is The Conspirators. John Whiteside Parsons, better known as Jack, was born on October 2, 1914, in Los Angeles. He came from a wealthy family, and even as a child he dreamed of traveling to the stars. Inspired by the pulp science fiction tales he read in Astounding and Amazing magazines, Parsons, along with his best friend Edward Foreman, began building simple gunpowder rockets in his backyard in Pasadena. 
The two boys drove their upscale neighbors crazy with all the explosions and burned up cardboard and paper they left littered in their yards. Parsons would spend the next several years trying to learn all he could about building rockets, which was nearly impossible at the time since most scientists of that era thought the concept of rocketry was silly science fiction nonsense. Neither Parsons nor Foreman finished college. Instead, they both found work by the mid-1930s with Halifax Explosives, a company based in the Mojave Desert. In 1935, Parsons married his high school sweetheart, Helen Northrop. The marriage only lasted a few years, but we'll get back to that later. In 1937, Parsons and Foreman attended a lecture at the California Institute of Technology on rocketry, where they met a student named Frank Molina, a mathematician and theorist studying mechanical engineering. The three men began inquiring around campus about how they could set up a rocketry program, but for the most part they were laughed out of every department they visited. They eventually met legendary aerodynamics engineer Theodore von Karman, who at the time was working in the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories on Caltech's campus. Von Karman was intrigued by these three eager young men, who told him about their big ideas to create new rocket propulsion systems the likes of which had never been seen before. Parsons, Foreman, and Molina received a grant and some lab space, and soon the trio were once again building rockets. It didn't take long for Parsons and his friends to get into trouble again. An early misfire of one of their rockets caused them to have to move their experiments to a concrete platform far away from the Guggenheim lab building. Then a second accident occurred, this time causing an explosion big enough to drive a hunk of steel into a brick wall. This accident resulted in two things. One, they had to move their operations out into the desert where they were less likely to kill anyone. And two, it earned their group a nickname. The Suicide Squad. They set up their new experiments in the Arroyo Seco area on the outskirts of Pasadena. Today that very same area is the location of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In fact, the term Jet Propulsion was coined by Parsons in order to cover up the fact that they were building rockets, since the term rocket had too much stigma about it. It wasn't long before the United States Army came knocking with a research project for the three young men to come up with a rocket-based propulsion system to quickly launch small aircraft. Their early experiments used powdered fuel, which resulted in explosion after explosion. But Parsons was inspired to try something new while observing a roofer applying hot asphalt to the top of a building. He was reminded of the legend of Greek fire, a weapon used by the ancient Byzantine Empire that shot flames out of a metal cannon using a flammable liquid. After some experimentation with the proper mixture of dry fuel and asphalt, Parsons came up with a thick liquid mix that would become the basis for the propulsion used in nearly all U.S. missiles and spacecraft that followed, including the space shuttle. But Jack Parsons had another darker side to him that seems in stark contrast to his scientific mind. In 1939, Parsons was introduced to the world of noted British occultist Aleister Crowley. Parsons began attending nightly meetings of the Order Templi Orientis, the temple for the religious movement Crowley created called Thelema, a sort of religious libertarianism that called for radical individualism and self-fulfillment. Crowley was known throughout the world as the foremost expert on black magic and the occult. He was also well known for his hedonistic lifestyle, 
involving free love, experimentation with recreational drugs, and for being a vocal social critic. The tabloids from the era would refer to this master of the dark arts as the wickedest man in the world. By all accounts, the meetings Parsons attended were part religious ceremony, part drunken orgy. One of the rituals they performed was something called the Gnostic Mass, a twisted version of the Catholic Mass involving an altar covered in hieroglyphics, black candles, naked women, and sword play. During the ritual, large amounts of drugs, wine, and cakes made of menstrual blood were consumed. Much of Crowley's religion was centered around the idea that sex was inherently magical and could raise a practitioner to a higher plane of consciousness. Most of Parsons' colleagues from the Suicide Squad thought their leader's occultist hobby was nuts. Communism was something that was much more attractive to many of the scientists that worked with him. Colleagues reported that often when they launched a new rocket, Parsons could be heard chanting Crowley's hymn to Pan prior to hitting ignition. In 1941, Parsons and his group of scientists formed the Aerojet Engineering Corporation in order to further legitimize their work and make it easier to sell their rockets to the military. By 1943, as World War II raged on and the need for newer, better, and faster rockets grew exponentially, Parsons and his company became the go-to source for the military. At the same time, as Parsons grew further in his notoriety as a scientist, so did his status grow in Crowley's church. He corresponded regularly with the elderly Crowley in England. Crowley took a huge liking to him, and soon Parsons became the West Coast leader of the Ordo Templi Orientis. It boggles the mind that by day, Parsons was a man of science, but by night he turned into a man steeped in the realm of magic and mysticism. But to Parsons, these two aspects of himself were just opposite sides of the same coin. He once wrote to a fellow OTO member, It has seemed to me that if I had the genius to found the jet propulsion field in the U.S. and found a multi-million dollar corporation and a world-renowned research laboratory, then I should also be able to apply this genius in the magical field. Parsons took the money he'd amassed from his rocketry business and bought a mansion on Pasadena's Millionaire's Row to use as the new headquarters of the OTO. Nicknamed the Parsonage, the mansion became a magnet for eccentrics of all stripes. There were artists and Manhattan Project scientists and science fiction writers and more than a few professional witches. Some people stopped in periodically to partake in the nightly debauchery or just to satisfy their natural curiosity over all the crazy rumors about what went on there. Some people just moved right in and became fully steeped in Crowley's spiritualism. One such permanent house guest was a young Navy veteran named L. Ron Hubbard. Parsons and Hubbard became fast friends. Parsons loved hearing Hubbard's war stories and crazy science fiction tales. As a science fiction writer, Hubbard was fascinated that he had met a real-life rocket scientist. It didn't take long for jealousy to begin driving a wedge between them, though. Shortly before moving into the mansion, Parsons had begun a sexual relationship with his wife Helen's sister, Sarah. Helen, in return moved on from Parsons and began a relationship with one of the church's senior members, Talbot Smith. But when Hubbard moved into the mansion, he immediately caught Sarah's eye, and she dumped Parsons and started a new relationship with the future founder of the Church of Scientology. Meanwhile, word about the nightly drunken orgies leaked back to the FBI. The feds investigated the goings-on at the mansion, 
but nothing they found was deemed a security risk. But that didn't mean Parsons wouldn't pay a price, though. The military told Aerojet, soon to be known as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the only way they could keep their government contracts would be if they got rid of Parsons, which they did. Parsons was furious. Driven out of the company he'd founded and stuck watching his girlfriend Sarah getting stolen away by Hubbard, he threw himself deeper into the realm of black magic. During a ritual in 1946, he attempted to conjure a goddess named Babylon, otherwise known as the Scarlet Woman. When a beautiful red-headed artist named Marjorie Cameron showed up at the mansion not long after, Parsons was convinced his spell had worked. Cameron became Parsons' muse, and the two of them became inseparable. Around that time, Hubbard approached Parsons with a new business venture, in which he would buy some yachts and resell them at a profit. Hubbard was an experienced sailor, and he convinced Parsons this was a guaranteed moneymaker. Parsons had already blown most of his fortune on partying and good times, and he was getting desperate for a quick way to make some more cash. He invested his last $20,000 into the venture, but it soon became apparent that Hubbard had no intention of returning the money. He left with the cash and with Parsons' ex-girlfriend Sarah. Parsons chased after them down to Florida, and he caught up with them literally just as they were casting off. Parsons wanted revenge, so he performed a magical ritual to curse the both of them. Then, just in case the curse didn't work, he sued Hubbard in a Florida court. Hubbard's boat actually did get damaged in a tropical storm, and he was forced to return to Florida. But Parsons later dropped the lawsuit when Sarah threatened to go public with their unorthodox relationship. A few years later, in 1950, Hubbard would go on to write Dianetics, which would lead him to worldwide fame and fortune. He married Sarah, and using much of what he learned with the OTO, he would then go on to form the Church of Scientology. Parsons divorced his wife Helen and married his scarlet woman Cameron. After World War II ended and the Cold War began, the government began freezing out any scientists they suspected of having communist ties. Parsons and many of his colleagues had their security clearance stripped, and suddenly they all found themselves out of work. A glimmer of hope appeared for Parsons when a group of pro-Israel scientists approached him and offered him a job within the Israeli rocket program. At the same time Parsons was working for the Israeli government, he was also doing some work for reclusive businessman Howard Hughes. Hughes accused Parsons of stealing top-secret documents from him, and he went straight to the FBI with his accusations. The FBI turned around and accused Parsons of being an Israeli spy. The charges were later dropped, but that was the final nail in the coffin to Parsons' rocketry career. He found work in a series of small jobs. He worked for a while as a manual laborer, a hospital orderly, and an auto mechanic. Eventually he found work that was more suitable to his skills in the movie industry, rigging pyrotechnics and explosives for film. Around that time, he started his own offshoot of the Thelemic religion he called the Witchcraft and began offering courses in its teachings for a $10 fee. He also collaborated on a book of poems with his wife Cameron that she illustrated called Songs for the Witch Woman, which remained unpublished until 2014. In 1952, right before a planned trip to Mexico with Cameron, Parsons received a large order of explosives for a movie. But something went wrong while Parsons was preparing them on the front porch of his home and the shipment exploded. 
The blast blew off Parson's right arm and both his legs and left a gaping hole in his jaw. Neighbors rushed over to try to help. Parsons lived long enough to speak three little words before he finally succumbed from his injuries. I wasn't done. He was only 37 when he died. The very same day upon hearing about her son's death, Parsons' mother committed suicide by overdosing on sleeping pills. Several of his friends and family members refused to believe the explosion was an accident. Some believed that either the U.S. or Israeli governments, or possibly even Howard Hughes himself, wanted to see Parsons dead. Still others thought it was a direct result of his increased dabbling in the dark arts. An investigator who looked into the explosion believed it could have possibly been suicide, but more likely had been a tragic accident caused when a canister of explosives slipped through Parsons' sweaty fingers. Parsons was cremated and Cameron scattered his ashes in the Mojave Desert. Later in life, she performed a ritual to send her spirit over to the afterlife to make contact with his. Over time, Parsons' papers were expunged from Caltech's records. Six years after Parsons' death, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, became part of NASA. Although much of Parsons' legacy has been obscured by his occult work, his contributions to the field of rocketry has never been completely forgotten. Although Werner von Braun was given the nickname the father of rocket science, he would argue that the title really belonged to Jack Parsons. Around the aerospace industry, some people began claiming that the initial JPL really stood for Jack Parsons Laboratory, or even Jack Parsons Legacy. Although he gained a measure of fame and notoriety in the black magic community, it's that very same notoriety that kept Parsons from being more fondly remembered for his scientific contributions. And that's a bit of a shame. Despite his many flaws, Parsons really was brilliant in his own right, and the modern space program wouldn't be what it is without his contributions. He once gave a speech to the members of his church explaining what drove him. The mainspring of an individual is his creative will. This will is the sum of his tendencies, his destiny, his inner truth. It is one with the force that makes the birds sing and flowers bloom, as inevitable as gravity. It informs alike atoms and men's and sons. To the man who knows this will, there is no why or why not, no can or cannot. He is. There is no known force that can turn an apple into an alley cat. There is no known force that can turn a man from his will. This is the triumph of genius that, surviving the centuries, enlightens the world. This force burns in every man. In 1972, the International Astronomical Union gave Parsons a bit of the credit he was due by naming a moon crater after him. It's hidden away on the dark side, just where Parsons would have liked it. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you enjoy the show, you can help us grow by downloading us on iTunes and leaving us a review. You can also always find us on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening.